So the one thing is repetition. Every month you should have content for people to engage with, uh, shared definitions so people know what you mean by diversity. Um, and then I think a few terms like microaggression, bias, privilege uh, that they can use so they can say, oh, I, I participated in the event. And then I thought about, could I see forms of bias and privilege in the content? Now I'm applying the learning. That's the thing. You have to use the skill and know what tool I'm supposed to be using. Um, and so that's the point of the repetition is because one time training doesn't work. And I always tell people like, uh, I can't make you racist in 45 minutes. So I can't undo racism in 45 minutes. That's why one time session doesn't work. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the All Inclusive podcast. On today's episode, I'm joined by Jason Thompson, author of Diversity and Inclusion Matters, Tactics and Tools to Inspire Equity and Game-Changing Performance. In this episode, we dive into Jason's inspiring journey and the motivations behind his book. We also explore the alternative solutions for combating unconscious bias in recruitment and the practical strategies that organizations can adopt to foster a more inclusive hiring process. As always, before jumping into the video, make sure to hit that subscribe button, turn on your notification bell and follow on your favorite podcast platform so that you never miss an episode. That being said, let's jump in. Hi, Jason. How are you? I'm good. How are you today? Doing good. Thanks for having me. No, thanks so much for joining me. So um, why not kick things off, tell our listeners a little bit about you and also the inspiration for the book. Yeah, I guess I'm slightly unusual in that I've been doing diversity almost 30 years. A lot of people think of diversity, equity, inclusion is kind of a new thing, but um, it was literally my first job out of college like 30 years ago. And um, But the last probably 10, 15 years, I've been launching diversity programs. So I've started from scratch. You know, you show up and then go, hey, we need a diversity program. Here's a very small budget, a computer and a desk. Good luck. And um, it, I just, I learned a lot through that process, you know, the last 10 or 15 years. And then um, Wiley, the book publisher, kind of got word of that I've been doing this and people had been reaching out to me to help them and asked me to write a book. And so I started writing it partly because it's just practical. What I found is most diversity books are very theoretical. And not that that's bad, but they typically speak like diversity is important. Well, yeah, great. But if you need CEO commitment, what are you supposed to do? Like, what does that actually mean in a very tangible way? And so that was kind of the inspiration of the book is just lessons learned. Um, as you probably know, diversity officers in the U.S. anyway, last about 18 months, high turnover. And uh, yeah. I would say a lot of it, a lot of it just because there's no textbook that helps you. Most of it's theoretical, like, you know, it's important but you don't know what you're supposed to do. And so that's what the goal of the book is to, you know, answer those simple questions of what to do on a regular basis. Oh, fantastic. And I think um, mm -hmm. in today's rapidly changing world, we know that the one, there's one tool that works in one way for diversity, another tool that works to create inclusive environments. And there's a lot that, that that's happening and it's ever changing because uh, we know that there's, things in politics different policies laws come in place so how does your book kind of contribute to that ever-changing landscape that we're in when it comes to diversity and inclusion yeah you're gonna find that the book uh diversity and inclusion matters super practical and essentially what i did is figure out what data you used to collect and almost in any program like the program can be unique to the company but a lot of the fundamentals are actually the same and so for me 
um, basically the first five chapters are what I call CAPE, collect, analyze, plan, execute, and use that CAPE technique to build a diversity program. Because what I find is, and this is, I always say diversity is actually the outcome of managing who gets promoted, how long they stay, and how they leave. So if it's termination, voluntary, involuntary. And if you manage that, the outcome will be diversity. Most people think, oh, I just create a diversity plan and then it starts falling apart because they don't actually know what the problem is. And so for me, I, if you organize the data up front and I talk about how to do that in the book and you manage those levers, you're not going to be surprised. And then you can tailor something to the, unit, to, to the organization that can be very effective. So I think the, the fundamentals are the same, but what happens is people don't know how to use those to uniquely create a plan that looks like the organization that they're in. Mm. And why do you think... And just, I think with the the cape that you have, which is in the book, I think it's great. Um, mm. I'm curious to hear from you because you've been doing this work for so long. Why do you think that is? Like, why why haven't we seen? Why isn't there enough resource out there available? Well, um, it's a relatively new industry, and I think a lot of it too initially was. Um, I don't think people really thought like in a very practical way to think about it. Like people knew theoretically and they started doing a lot of research on why we should do diversity rather than, okay, great. We, now we've agreed it's good. What are we supposed to do? Like we haven't quite transitioned that. And I think we're in that point now where people are transitioning to, well, what are we supposed to do? And people are really starting to struggle with um, like everyone I think knew we should write a diversity plan. I mean, I remember everybody was writing diversity plans, but I don't think anybody really did the math on it. Like how does a diversity plan work? What should be in it? Um, and I use the word math because I'm very database, but I do think that's one of the misses. And one of my examples would be, and I see this all the time, you know, I consult with different organizations. And I remember an organization said to me one day, well, I, I just got hired chief diverse officer. They had a diversity plan. I just followed the plan they had. And the plan was focused on recruitment. And my take was, well, great. How do you know you have a recruitment problem? And her response was, I don't, I guess I hadn't thought of that. And you could see the weakness right there. If you build the whole thing on recruitment and you don't have a recruitment problem, you're not going to get outcomes. And most organizations do this all the time. And there's actually data you should collect to know whether or not you have a recruitment problem. Because a lot of times what happens is, and this is what they were experiencing. This is why they reached out because it was falling apart. People are applying for the job. They had a diversity of people applying for the job. They weren't being hired. So they don't have a diversity recruitment problem. Mm -hmm. They had selection bias. And so therefore you need to do you know, unconscious bias training, you know, talk about that, that would actually fix your problem. But because they never collected the data, they were fixing a problem that didn't exist. It's an assumption a lot of people make. We're not diverse. It's a recruitment issue. And many times that's actually not what's going on. People are applying for the jobs. They're just never being seen by the hiring manager or the hiring manager sees them, just never chooses them. Mm. And I'm going to go down a little bit of a recruitment rabbit hole a bit. Sure. <laughs> so... <laughs> How we know collecting data is important, and I agree. Mm. I think you yep. need to know the landscape of your business, where where those pain points are, in order to to kind of build from there. Um, sure. With recruitment, you talk about the selection process, and actually, you've got diverse people that are applying, but they're not actually going anywhere. Um, yep. they're not reaching the next stage. So how would you address that aside from unconscious bias training? Because I feel like that's the key one, like we know, and a lot sure. of organizations do it. I'm not discounting that it's not uh, beneficial and it shouldn't be on there. But I'm it. curious to hear from you other other ways to solve that problem. Well, one of the things I do is you'll find I'm, I'm super practical. And one of the things you need to do is accountability. 
So if I have data, I can say to a manager, it's interesting. You had 10 opportunities to hire and you never hired a woman. I actually remember, I actually had this situation years ago where somebody had 18 straight hires, not one person of color. I was like, that outcome is mathematically impossible. Just so you know, we're holding you accountable to this. Just out of randomness and the candidates we've been presenting to you, I know that that outcome has to show bias. We are going to hold you accountable to it. You'd be surprised how quickly that changes people's behavior mm. because it's hard to argue that kind of math when it's like, well, how do you go 18 straight hires, no women or 18 straight, no people of color. And we know candidates were presented to you. That's clearly bias. We think you should hire at a rate that's equivalent to the appearance of any particular candidate in the market. So for example, it's theoretically possible that if you're an engineering firm where we know women are underrepresented, that if you made hires, you might only hire one woman because women in some depending on this, you only make up 10%. So out of 10 hires, one would actually make sense. That's what we hold you to. But if you go 18 and 0, we're telling that's a whole different score, story. Something else is going on. Yeah. Like out of 18, you're probably closer to two, maybe three, but none would reflect bias. So that's how we try to push on that is this, and we try to show they're in the pool, right? Now, as a leader, they have every right. So I never saw any candidates or any, any women that would make sense, but that's why we track it. And that's how we do it. And we actually call it an equity table. We're not saying we guarantee this diversity, but what we are saying is, just out of random selection, 0% is an outcome that is actually impossible. Like just out of randomness. Yeah. Uh, and so that's how we start balancing and, and helping leaders understand what's expected of them, how we hold them accountable. Um, you know, sometimes you get pushed back. Well, this is a quota, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, you can call it what you want, but we're just saying this is simple math and randomness. You can't keep getting this outcome and assume it's random. It's no longer random. There's some, there's intent. And that intent is what concerns us you say would be a good period to go like time period to wait before you reflect on where you're at if that makes sense so say yeah. you've run the data okay these are what our numbers are saying as you said look you need to work on this you've, you've not hired enough black people like we're at zero percent this isn't this isn't yeah. what you should be doing okay great we go away how long is it do you wait before you start looking okay where where are we at now well, it depends on the size of the companies, how many hires you make. So for example, uh, you know, you could be only hiring two people a year, right? So we just do it annually. We just check and show and generally annually typically works for most companies, right? We just, we let you know at the beginning of the year, what you look like. Sometimes we check in at six months, we check in a year later. And the reality for us, and this is what I call an equity table is we also put in the context, the fact that if you only make two hires a year, it is possible that you wouldn't hire a person of color, just depending on the industry. I mean, but, and that's where we check it up. And then we, we track, uh, we track it over several years. So we can say, well, uh, now we're, we're training three years straight over six hires. It's starting to look like there's a pattern here. Mm -hmm. So it depends on the organization, how many hires, but that's why I always say it's an equity. We look at other levers. It could be that you don't hire any women because you only had one hire to make in three years, but women should be getting promotions. There's other levers. And so we look at how is an, and how does a employee experience your organization? So that'd be, well, are people getting promoted. Are they staying relatively the same amount of time as their peers? Do we see high turnover? And are they leaving because they're being fired? Right? So all those levers to me, you have to put in a context. Mm. And that's why it's an equity table. We're trying to measure how is it, how are people experiencing our organization? And, if, and so that's when we sit down with leaders, that's what we show them, basically, this entire experience. And then your job as a leader is to manage those experiences. And we know um, what the metrics is because we use some comparators so that it's fair. Um, and generally that holistic view, 
we find much, becomes much more empowering for leaders. Actually, we rarely get much pushback when people see that because hiring is a function of who's available in the market. So it could be low, but that doesn't mean people shouldn't be getting promotions. Mm -hmm. That should, doesn't mean you should have high turnover, right? It's all those things that a manager has to manage. Yeah. And for you personally, like what have you found to be the most impactful program or initiative that, that really really creates the cultural change within an organization i know i mean i know it is going to be dependent on that sure. particular organization but yeah. for you in kind of overall what would you say i guess one one thing probably is going to be difficult <laughs> to pinpoint sure. but what would you say is a key step or action that you found to, to make the most difference when going yeah, into so an organization what i've done is well there's a couple of things one is i use the data i think data is helpful because almost everybody can relate to data yeah yeah the second thing is, um, at the end of the day, and I write about this in the book, what a diversity program does is it creates cultural change. There are principles and all kinds of theories around how to create cultural change, organizational change. I use the example of ADCAR. So for me, ADCAR is an acronym for awareness. You know, there's, I can't remember all the terms, but anyway, it's all written up in the book. But the ADCAR is a process where we move away from one-time mandatory training and move to regular um, training every month because what one of the things you want to do is create the awareness. Hey, this is happening. We're changing in this direction. This is a commitment we made. And so an employee can say, oh, I should align myself with this if I want to do well. Just like you align yourself to the vision, the mission of the organization if you want to do well. One of the ways to do that is to understand our diversity, equity, and inclusion. Then we click spaces so the awareness can then move into action. Like I, I attend the sessions. The attention gives me the knowledge. The knowledge means I can actually apply the skill. And so we've moved away from one-time training. We've moved to a regular interaction with content because the goal is we want organizational change. One-time training doesn't work. And I always joke about this, but it's true. I can't do my own travel. Like you have to submit your travel like once a month, whatever it is, whenever you travel, right? And the reason I can't do it is because I never use it. Like I get a one-time training and then I might not travel for three or four months. And then it's like, oh my gosh, I can't remember what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. That's why one-time training doesn't work, right? Because I can't remember how to do travel. I don't use it. So if they get a one-time training on diversity, it doesn't work because it's like six months later, I make a hire. People are like, I don't no, remember. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember when I go on, like, it's the same, I guess, when with, with anything, when you leave work, say you go on on, yeah. on annual leave for a significant period yeah. of time. Even when I went on maternity leave for like a year, yeah. I wasn't doing work. Yeah. I literally, I couldn't even remember what my password was. Oh, exactly. Um, exactly. So, yeah, no, I totally get get that. Yeah, yeah. So we've moved. And so the one thing is repetition. Every month you should have content for people to engage with uh shared definitions so people know what you mean by diversity um and then i think a few terms like microaggression bias privilege uh, that they can use so they can say oh I, I participated in the event and then i thought about could i see forms of bias and privilege in the content now i'm applying the learning that's the thing you have to use the skill and know what tool i'm supposed to be using um and so that's the point of the repetition is because one-time training doesn't work. And I always tell people, like, uh, I can't make you racist in 45 minutes, so I can't undo racism in 45 minutes. That's why one-time session doesn't work. Mm -hmm. right? our, our beliefs are closely held. It's hard, it, it's hard to break those beliefs. So it takes repetition. That's what we need to do. Yeah, and I think, isn't it, um, doesn't research say it takes, like, 90 days to, to even stick to, like, a routine? For, yeah, for our exactly. brains to even be able to continue or to, to start implementing any sort of new routine, it, it takes about at least yeah. 90 days to do that. 
So yeah, exactly. No, I yeah, don't. and we we have built diversity programs on a model that doesn't work. It's a lot of it's focused on one-time training. Like every time something happens, people come to me, oh, Jason, we should train around it. You know, it's like in the U.S., George Floyd, can't we do a training? We should do a training. Everyone needs training. And I pushed back and I was like, no, what we need is repetition. This isn't the first time we've seen someone, unfortunately, African-Americans be killed by police. But because we do one-time training, people think it's fixed. All right, so you can, we've almost enhanced that assumption that these problems are all in the past. When we have a problem, we give you the 45-minute training and then we go on to something else. No, I think we've not broken the habit. No, not not at all. <laughs> yeah, not by exactly. a long shot, but but yeah. we're making a dent, and and that's that's important. And I agree. I think um, it's a, a continuous learning experience, um, yes. and a one time fix is is not is not going to happen. But exactly. yeah, yeah, I think repetition is important. But repetition costs money, <laughs> unfortunately. Yep. So, how would you how would you tackle that? So, with organisations that um they've got the right sentiment so i mean they it, from the moral perspective they know that it's the right thing to do but actually they've done a couple of training here maybe integrated one or two programs but it is starting to, to to cost quite a lot so how how would you overcome that pushback in in terms of that the finances um well well my book's quite affordable so i think they can uh, provide the book but there's actually a uh <laughs> Uh, you know, there's blatant promotion of the book. But anyway, there. this is what I recommend. Every time I've had a diversity program, I, I, I'm not exaggerating. Regardless of the size of the organization, I usually show up and they go, here's your desk, here's your computer, and you get about a $50,000 budget, make this thing work. And we got, well, we got 10,000 employees. Like, how am I supposed to make that work? And there actually is ways to do this. And this is why I think most diverse officers fail. It's because there's no textbook that tells them. And, the lot, and my book lays this out. Here's what I would do. You can do this very effectively. Number one, you need to have shared language. So you need to give people definitions, diversity, equity, inclusion, microaggression, bias, privilege. And you only need to do like five or six of them. Then what you do is you need content, but you don't have to have expensive content. It can be, for example, here's a YouTube video where someone's talking about some topic. And then you just have people look at it and go, oh, can you see forms of bias in the presentation? Can you see privilege, right? Can you see a microaggression? And it could be they, they don't, which would be totally normal because you have to practice the content. So every month you just say, we just need you to commit 10 or 15 minutes to this content. Or you can even do, hey, a popular movie came out. We're just asking everybody to go to the movie, and then we're going to do a movie session and decompress what we just saw. I mean, some of it is, you know, there's historical movies that came out about certain events that happened. But sometimes it could be like some of these movies that come out, there's like a day in the life or even a superhero movie. Like you can see a lot of gender bias in superheroes, right? And you could just have that conversation. Wow, it's a great movie. It's funny. This. Or a commercial that comes on TV. There was a commercial in the U.S. about gambling, and essentially they would have a white person sitting on the couch, you know, getting ready to make a bet, but they couldn't figure it out. And then they'd have this black athlete come in through the door and take the phone from their hand and show them how to do this, make the bet. But there was implied a very offensive message that black athletes are stupid, and even they can use this app. Like there was an underlying message that was very insidious, and the only way the joke actually worked was you have to accept. Black athletes are stupid. That's what made this funny because they could grab the, hand, the this phone out of a white person's hand and immediately show them how to do it. And, the, and they would say then, see how easy this is. And the implication was completely offensive. The joke only works if you assume the stereotype about black people. Yeah. Which was completely missed. They ran it for years. But that commercial just helped me have this conversation about how bias and privilege works. Like, why is this funny? You know, pause for a minute, look at it. 
costs nothing, right? It's already on TV. But all we did is organize the conversations, right? And then we give them a tool. Can you apply this tool to this situation? If you can, then, and other things we do as an organization, you can hopefully begin the practice of applying the tool of how do I see microaggression? How do I see privilege? How does it impact how I interact with my coworkers, our customers, et cetera? Oh, that advert, I'm just like, I'm still yeah. like, what? I'm still processing. Oh, yeah. But no, I agree. I think um, that it, it definitely will, it's, it sounds so so simple when you when you think about it, but actually it just takes one person creating that idea. And it's great that, that within, with the help of your book and, and what you've just said, these are just very somewhat easy, quick things that you can implement and put together on mm. a continuous basis, which doesn't cost yeah. anything but time. Yeah, and I think that's the... The problem is there hasn't been many textbooks or anything to help people think of what are the things we can do. Um, and because you're right, like a lot of it is expensive. There are companies who have like microaggression sessions and all these things. And it's, and I'm not saying you shouldn't buy them actually. I mean, I'm a consultant myself, so I get it. These people need their jobs. We need to support them if we can. Um, so I'm not against it, but it can be done. Unfortunately, what happens is the dynamic you get is you don't get much money and they give you this big task. And you're technically set up to fail. Like most diversity officers, we talked about, right? It's high turnover. Partly because the light comes on. Like I'm set up here to fail. They want me to do all these things, but they don't give me the funds to do it. Yeah. And so it, the light comes on pretty quickly for people that there's only so much I can do here, but the criteria is so high that I can't meet it and it's unfair to me. So most people, they, you know, they leave. So, so looking to the future, mm -hmm. um, what would you, what, what changes or improvements would you like to see going forward? In the years ahead well i think obviously it'd be better it'd be great to have more of a financial commitment from organizations like a lot of people said it's important but they're not putting the money there so we've got to have that um and then i think we've got to start pushing back at least in the u.s there's some legislation that's kind of anti-diversity equity inclusion but we need to call that out not because diversity is important because that's what fascism and dictatorships look like mm. when a legislative branch is used to silence the voice of small underrepresented groups, that's what dictatorships do. That's what fascism looks like. And if you know your history and you look, there's a huge parallel between what's going on in Florida and what's going on or what happened in, in Germany. And one of the first things they did was make homosexuality illegal. What has Florida done? Can't say gay. You know, all these laws. Yeah, uh, I mean, like, there's one where direct, even if yeah. you, like, I think it was if they, if someone is of, uh, gay is gay and yeah. they have kids and they are supportive of their children and yeah. kind of going through a transgender process anything like yeah. that like it's that would be illegal and it would yeah. it's yeah, scary were, it's ex and it's exact if you look historically you see the same laws were were done in germany the same laws and then they slowly just start dismantling the voice of jews What's going on in Florida isn't really about diversity and inclusion. They are dismantling the voice of people of color, systematically doing this in such a way that you end up with Nazi Germany, where if essentially it's the people themselves that becomes illegal. But they didn't do it in one day. And it was this silence from everybody like, oh, it's not that bad, or that's what they're doing there, I don't live there, that kind of thing, that allowed this to grow. And I think as diversity officers, we have to start calling that out. Like, there's something more insidious going on here. That is fundamentally the opposite of what uh, a free society is based on. 
so I do think that conversation, and I think it's important too to why history is so important because the other thing they've done is they basically are moving history. They're you know making Black history, moving it from the books. All, these are all the same techniques that were used. This is how dictatorships are created. This is what fascism looks like, and we need to have that conversation. Mm, definitely, and I think it could it starts with the as you said diversity, equity, inclusion leaders it, to to voice um yes. their disgust and mm. what's going on but also in the same breath it's it's for the individual for us as as people as a society to say like that's that's not okay um yeah. also and to do as much as we can in our part um because like you said i agree like i think um america's a very big place and there's a lot of other places that you can go to where um you will feel like you can be your true self and um it's very easy to simply just be like, oh, well, I'm just not going to go there. Exactly. exactly. Um, and that's, that's, good. that's a very good point. But I think we, we need to do more than just not go there. We need to be like, yeah. no, that's wrong. And yes. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Exactly. But I've, I've so much enjoyed this, this, this conversation, Jason. Um, one, a couple of more things that I wanted to, to grab out of you is we've touched a bit on data and analytics and that um, we've got to start with the data. What would you say is one of the tools that, that you've used to be able to gather that? So what the, the key metrics, what are we actually looking at? What, what am I pulling? Yeah, so um, I, there are a couple of things and it depends on your company, but usually you have an applicant tracking system. So you need to know who's applying for jobs. You need to track race, LGBTQ, whatever information you can get out of that. Um, but there are two things. The easy part essentially is mostly your HR system kind of houses all this. So you need to be able to break down the demographics, but then you need to know who's getting promoted, how long they stay, who gets ter terminated and how they get terminated. You then need to have a comparator. So in the U S we have like census data um, and you need to compare who's in your organization based on who has a skill set in the world. So you know, what's fair. So you can say we have like, you see this all the time, 14% of our team is, like African-Americans, let's say. Is that low or high? Well, technically, African-Americans only make 14% of the U.S. population, so 14 actually isn't low. It just feels low. Yeah. Uh, right, and, and it could be, not only that, we're an engineering company, and engin black engineers only make up 6%. So 14 would actually be very good. So you need to know what the market. Um, full transparency, you know, that's one of the things we do for people as a consultant. We actually help them figure out what the market is. That's usually the heavier part of the data lift. Getting the internal data is easier because you already have a system to do that, but the comparator takes a lot more work. It's mm -hmm. kind of a heavier lift. But once you have that, it makes your life so much easier because then you know what, and I always say one of the biggest challenges for diverse officers is unrealistic expectations. Because many times what happens is people say, well, women make up 50% of the world. Shouldn't they be 50% of our team? Well, in theory, yes. But 50%, for instance, let's say you have 10 leaders uh, at the vice vice presidents, right? In an organization, big company, you got 10 vice presidents. And you think, well, half of our vice presidents should be women because women make up half the world. True. But you probably only have 10% turnover, which means you only lose one vice president a year. So to get to 50% could take like five, 10, maybe never get there because that would also mean 100% retention of women and only men lead. Mm. So one man would have to lead every year for the next five years and only women be hired to get the 50%. The number's unrealistic. Like you can't actually achieve that. It's not that it's not important, but you have to have realistic expectation to say to the leadership team, your job as leaders, keep good people. Every time you keep good people, 
it reduces my opportunity to make the place more diverse because the only way I do it is people have to leave and I got to replace them. That equation, most people just don't understand how it works. If you have a good understanding of that, you can actually set goals that can be achieved. And that's where I think one of the weaknesses has been historically. Most people don't understand that math. It's a simple equation, but most people never think about that. They only think, where are the women? They have to be 50%, which is true. Like, I understand that right in my gut. What I don't understand is that's predicated on turnover. And everybody here as a leader is working to lower turnover, which is exactly means we're working at cross purposes. Yeah. I need you to turn people over, right? Nobody wants high turnover. No. High turnover is indicative of a company that's failing. If you go to a company and they got 50% turnover, nothing good is going on there. Although you could make the company more diverse because they have that turnover, but the longer that stays, the longer you know the culture's broken. It's mm. not going to work. And I think yeah. that's where it's important to include that in the the inclusion piece. I think that's where it, it's important also is that yeah. um, if you're getting all of these people in, like you yeah. still kind yeah. of want them to, you want them to stay there. Exactly. Um, so yeah. it's it's definitely something that needs to happen hand in hand. It it, it they both go yes. in hand in hand and clearly within the title diversity and inclusion and inclusive exactly yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing and that's the data tells you whether or not do i have a recruitment program problem or do i have an inclusion problem people just don't stay and that typically is a manager issue recruitment is an hr issue right and so that's another reason why it's so important to know where the problem is so you can actually start addressing things in the right place because a lot of times an organization isn't diverse they do all this training in hr the issue is the managers are the problem right they're training the wrong people even Right, mm. they got the wrong, and so but the data lets us know, and then even like, I tend to be very practical, very direct. A lot of times, managers don't know what it is in their behavior that's a problem. That's why I train around microaggression, so I can say, every time we take notes, you look at the woman take notes. Like we see this all the time in the U.S. That's a microaggression, and for many women, they're like, oh my gosh, I'm the senior VP, and everyone looks at me, and they still want me to take the notes. Really? Like, if people don't understand that. That's why most women leave. They're like, yeah, I, just, I got sick of the fact that every time I show up, they want to take notes and no, like no one gets it here. And then when I say something, something's wrong with me, the response is, oh, but you have the nicest handwriting or blah, blah, blah. But it's like, yeah, I'm the vice president here. I'm not here to take notes. I don't yeah. do that. We don't ask the men who are VPs to do that, right? Like just understanding that subtlety, what, what microaggression means. Because many times what happens is if a woman does voice that, it's not received well because the other leaders who are men don't understand what a microaggression is. So you have to start in the middle which is hard instead of the beginning because they don't have the vocabulary. I got to start at the beginning instead of the middle, right? I got to give you the vocabulary of what a microaggression is in the first place. And then they go, oh, now I understand why it's offensive to her. Because their intent, they're going to, I have good intent, Jason. I care. I, I like women. That's yeah. what you hear all the time. Of course you do. But the problem is your behavior. And do you see how this might? And they're like, no, I don't understand that as a microaggression because I'm a good person. Yeah. I don't mean it that way. Yeah. They need to take it differently, right? They don't have to own their own behavior. So inclusion is hard because they don't have the fundamental vocabulary and understanding to understand the concept of what's going on in these every time you ask women to take the notes in the meeting. Mm. Also, I think sometimes it's, I don't know whether it's human nature, but I think more often than not, that's what I'd like to say, more often than not, as people, um, we want to be seen as good, good people. Exactly. Like I'm a good person. Yeah. And so if somebody comes to you with, the way you treated someone was wrong. And if it wasn't clear in, I feel like the knee jerk reaction is, oh no, it could, I could never have done that. Like I, I'm a good person yeah. though. I thought, exactly. no, exactly. um, I'm not racist. Yeah. I have black friends. Yeah. Like it's that, yeah. exactly. <laughs> it's exactly. that sort of line. And it's just, yep. it's really important. I think 
um when well for me anyway i find with when we're, we're talking about microaggressions it's it's just it's not saying that you're a bad person it's actually exactly. teaching you to look outside of your own bubble exactly and come from a perspective of how do you think that sentence would have been received by someone else yes and it takes practice and repetition mm -hmm. and i think that's what's been missing is i get a one-time training on microaggression and my first response is yeah those things are terrible but i don't do that because yeah. i'm a good person I'm good intent <laughs> it's not about me because mm -hmm. there's no examples but if i say no the reason you're in this room is because all the women in your team feel like they're treated differently based on a microaggression let's have a conversation about microaggression and then all of a sudden i've connected the dots for number one why you're in the room why you need this training why you need to practice and what the intended outcome is inclusion and so we know what tool i need to use to increase inclusion I think right now what happens is people know inclusion is important, but they're never given a tool. So they don't know what they're supposed to do. It's like, yeah, I know it's important. I'm a good person. You know, I'm good. I just move forward instead of saying, no, no, no. <laughs> Here's exactly what I need you to do. Oh, well, Jason, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today. I think um, your book is is definitely one. It's not just a simple read. Um, and I say that in a positive way because it really does provide leaders with the tools um to actually be able to go out and do do good um which is important i think we need more more books like yours so i'll definitely be linking down below this episode Thanks. a link to your book yeah. for anyone who is listening you're, they'll be able to purchase it and also if anyone wants to just connect with you in general what's the easiest way yeah so you can go to our website uh cape inclusion and then of course my email is just jason at cape inclusion uh, happy to help um, we do quite a bit in the consulting space so uh and then the books diversity inclusion matters on amazon so any of that works for me or the local any local book retailer can it's published by wiley publishing so um, the book's out there oh fantastic so just before you do leave us though um what would be your parting piece one piece of parting advice that you would give to dei leaders of tomorrow uh take care of yourself you know i think it's it's very heavy and a lot of times you're experiencing the same thing people come to you for you know and it's okay to take time for yourself and it's probably the most important thing. I think that's another reason we see a lot of burnout is people don't ask for help um, and it can be very, very heavy. So I encourage you, I see a counselor once a month. I think we should be honest about our mental health and very open about it. It's okay to be hurt by what you see and for it to impact you individually, but you don't have to suffer in silence. So I'd really encourage people, you know, get in this space, ask for help and, you know, take care of yourself. It's really important. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that, Jason, um, with our viewers. I think I couldn't agree more. I think it's so important that we, we take care of our own well-being, especially DEI leaders if, if of, of any people, really, because um, it's, it's a heavy load that, that you've got to carry. So thanks again, Jason, and I look forward to speaking with you again soon in the future. All right, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it.